Hey, this is Andrew from the Medical Money Podcast. Here we share tips and tactics to help doctors earn, grow, and protect their money. Please share it with your colleagues. Many of us have started doing telemedicine over the past month. You probably also have staff working from home, but have you given any thought about the practice policies for your contractors and staff? In today's episode, we discuss the policies you need for your practice to ensure you and your staff are protected. We'll also look at telehealth, remote work, and advertising within the APRA guidelines. My guest today is Sarah Bartholomews. She's a lawyer and founder of You Legal, a law firm that humanizes the experience of engaging lawyers. Sarah's passionate about protecting organizations so they can focus on making their impact on the world. She wears the title Goddess of Governance, has been a TED speaker, and won the Telstra Business Women's Award in 2015 for Best Startup. This podcast is not financial advice, and all opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own. Please seek professional advice before making any financial or investment decision. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? Very well. How are you? Oh, very good. Thanks. Uh, thanks for sharing your time with us today. Can I get you to tell us a little bit about how you help doctors and medical practices? Sure. We work with doctors to help them protect their practice, patients and profit. Very good. In today's episode, I'd like to cover practice policies, especially those regarding telehealth, working from home and APRA advertising. Many listeners are practice owners, self-employed contractors and locums. In normal times, we're highly focused on our clinical work, but most of us have extra time now due to social distancing and reduced workload. There's no better time to create or update those work policies. In your signature uh, solution called Thrive, you mentioned your framework, which is uh, based on protecting your practice, the people and the profit. Can you elaborate more on this and maybe give us some examples of where things have gone wrong in the medical profession? Sure. It's always fun to hear stories about where things go wrong, isn't it? That's right. It makes it more real, really. Otherwise, it's really just a... Uh, a lot of bullet points. I know. So in Thrive, we work initially with um, with our clients and their accountants to make sure that their structure is set up. So there's a, a practice uh, that's in rural South Australia at the moment with quite a lot of doctors that's currently still set up as a partnership. And so we're working with them and their accountant to work that into a structure that helps protect them from a tax point of view and helps protect the doctors personally as well. So a partnership structure does not protect you as an individual, whereas the structure we're looking at for them is creating a, a unit trust structure. So there'll be a company that's the trustee, not an individual, and then the individual doctors will have units in a unit trust so that they'll be rewarded according to the amount of number of units that they have which is usually organised around how much uh, income they're bringing in. So setting the structure and then looking at where, what, where you are now, like kind of drawing a line in the sand or I say having a health check, looking at the arrangements that you've got in place and, um, and creating a roadmap, I suppose, about how to protect that, the people in your practice and then also your profit because I really believe that doctors should be rewarded for all their efforts and also having profit in your practice isn't necessarily about being greedy it's also about making sure that you've got enough money to be able to pay your team and invest in growth as well so for the people we look at 
um, employment agreements and um, services agreements. So uh, an example of where I've talked to someone recently about services agreements is a practice owner from Melbourne rang me and he had three of his doctors that have been working with him for years go and set up a practice down the road and um, there's no restraint because there's no agreement in place and so he felt personally devastated that he'd lost these three high-performing doctors Um, but there's absolutely nothing um, that we could do because his teachers had a word of mouth kind of agreement with them to work for a certain percentage at certain times um, that that they agreed to. So um, not having an agreement in place with your doctors is actually incredibly common, but it's very high risk for the practice owner. So we want to overcome that. You've got a really good uh, video that people can uh, watch on YouTube where you talk about contractors versus employees as well, don't you? Yeah, so there are people who are moving towards having more employed doctors in their practice rather than having the the contractor arrangements because there are some risks which I have gone through in that webinar which uh, anyone's welcome to watch if they're interested in that um, because, yeah, there's certain indicators that uh, – that will assess whether or not they're an employee or a contractor, regardless of what the agreement that you have in place says. Is it common to have those um, restrictions of practice criteria in uh, in contracts? A restraint of trade. So yeah. It, yeah. It, it and what's the typical common. geographic restriction? It depends. So if you're in a rural area versus the, the CBD of Sydney, it'll be different about what can be um, what's reasonable, I suppose, courts will always look at what it, what is enforceable is what's reasonable and that depends. And lawyers always say that and it can be annoying, but it's true. It really does depend. And how about other staff like admin and nursing staff? Having employment agreements for them is 100% what you need, reception, um, and your practice manager is a really important one to have a, a really good employment agreement and to know what sort of delegations you've given to them and what sort of power they have without having to come back to you because you don't necessarily want to be approving every stationary order probably, um, but you do want to be approving legal spend or approving um, a negotiation with a pathology person who wants to move into the practice. So those employment agreements are important for sure. Yeah, and I suppose under people we have to include patients as well. Yeah, so patients are included under people. Uh, so making sure you've got your privacy policy in place, an email disclaimer for your practice, confidentiality agreement with you and your IT people and anyone else who you need a confidentiality agreement with, um, and making sure that you've got a notifiable data breach toolkit as well. We've had laws recently change in Australia where you have to make a mandatory notification if you um, if, if information about a patient is sensitive and gets disclosed somewhere that it shouldn't. Um, so knowing what to do in those cases I think is important and also under people includes you as the owners. So having an owner's agreement um, and that kind of agreement will depend on what sort of structure you have in place so a partnership agreement or a unit holders agreement or an owner's agreement as we've been calling them for hybrid trusts um 
making sure that you've agreed what the like what what's going to happen um, for if someone wants to leave or if someone dies is really important because you don't necessarily want to end up with the spouse of one of your um, business partners as your business partner. You want to have a plan in place about what to do if that if the un, unexpected happens. Yeah, a lot of uh, GP centres might have, say, a physio or a um, audiologist or someone else rent space from them. What what do you call that document? Well, we include we include that under profit, uh, and for that we we prefer to prepare license agreements as a per, as opposed to subleases. And the reason for that is a legal technicality. A lease agreement gives a tenant a right to the land whereas a license agreement will give them just a right to use a space. So they'll have right to use that room and it might be exclusive, but then there'll be shared areas they can use like the kitchens or the bathrooms um, and just everybody can can use those reasonably um, without having to pay any extra rent. And not taking toilet paper. Oh, yes. No, (laughs) No stealing the toilet paper. Good. Well, given that this is the Medical Money Podcast, let's talk about profit. Yes. So so tenants is definitely a profit area for your practice, making sure you're making the most of the space, but then also promoting your practice. So having um, terms and conditions of use on your website and um, a disclaimer that's personalized for your practice on your website as well, if you need that. Um, And then having advertising and social media policy addressing the upper requirements and and restrictions that you have and potentially having a consent form for patient images if you do want to use images in your advertising as well. Good. Intellectual property, are there is there common intellectual property that um, practices don't see as intellectual property that they're not protecting? Yeah, well, some people are. We're working with a psychiatrist at the moment who's creating an online telehealth practice that will have other psychiatrists as well. And the way that they're structuring their practice is that there's a separate entity that owns the IP. And that's it's quite a common way that um, other businesses operate. It's probably um, not that common for medical practices, but because his practice will be so heavy on IP, there is a separate license agreement between the operating entity and this IP holding company to be able to use the IP. And we would prepare agreements where any IP that is is created then becomes owned by that IP entity automatically um, so that that's where a big value of his practice is going to be. So he wants that protected uh, in the future, which makes a lot of sense. And um, and it's wonderful to see entrepreneurial doctors thinking about things that way too. Mm. And in terms of insurance for, for practices? Yeah, so that's also under profit, making sure that you don't just have your medical indemnity insurance, that you've got insurances that cover the practice um, so that if someone's um, particularly overweight and sits on a chair in your waiting room and falls off and injures themselves, like is are we insured for that? Or something happens um, where there's a, a big storm and your um, vaccine fridge goes out before you even thought about getting um, getting a generator. Like what what sort of insurances do we need for our practice and do we have them in place and do we have a 
great insurance broker who's always thinking about us. Okay, excellent. So COVID-19 has forced many practices to use telehealth and get their staff working from home, which they might have not done before. What do practices and sole traders need to be aware of with both of these um, new uh, activities that we're doing? I think practices, and I know everyone's radically changing the way that they operate for various reasons at the moment, but practices need to be thinking about what the risks are for telehealth. Firstly, so um, looking at the um, people have been talking about which technology they're going to use. At my GP practice, I think they're just using the telephone at the moment, but other practices are using video as well and working out how to do that so that no doctor's private information can be shared because they don't want people following up directly with doctors all the time or having people search them and find their home addresses and all sorts of things that can come out of that sort of privacy. So privacy of the practice, but also privacy, um, your, your privacy policy and, and data security as well. So thinking about how your cybersecurity um, is going to be um, impacted, uh, making sure you've got protocols and policies in place and insurance as well if, if you think you need to investigate that. I found it interesting you mentioned before about the uh, the law requirements, I think it's IPP is what it's called, where previously needed to be using a platform that was end-to-end encrypted and had no data that was leaking essentially out of Australia. Now with Zoom and nice. Skype and FaceTime, it seems like this COVID crisis has really just, you know, let people do whatever. <laughs> do you think that's going to change back or are we going to be like this forever that no one's complained and we can still do it? Because we've seen like, you know, Hamish Blake has had all these uh, Zoom for no. one more and just, and just Zoom bombing people's rooms. We need to make sure that practices are prepared for that. Yeah, definitely. And Zoom is one of those platforms that is approved by Medicare and People complain about the law moving slowly a lot of times and not keeping up with things. And I think this is an area where it definitely hasn't. But at the same time, I do think that legislators often need time to be able to consider risks like this. And because things are moving so quickly, I just don't think that they have. Um, And I don't know if things will change back. It's possible that they will see the risks as too high with certain platforms and um, where they have been approved for this particular moment in time, they'll change their mind. Mm. And I think as we see, this may be a new way of doing things as well, that it's been big in the psychology and the psychiatry space already without the need for you know, actual body-to-body human contact. But I wonder whether we're going to be seeing more telehealth. So having these policies is not only relevant for now, but also for, for later on as well. And that probably is... Yeah, my parents and my parents-in-law, they love that they don't have to... My parents-in-law in particular, they live in rural South Australia and they don't have to drive anywhere to go to the doctor. The doctor send the script to their local um local pharmacy and it was all over in five minutes so that's that's a big win for them but then is it a win for them if their doctor isn't seeing them and picking other things up yeah that's right and from the currently from the medical side obviously everything's bulk billing which may not allow may not be sustainable in the long term for practices yep 
Thank you. Let's maybe move across to the uh, work from home policies and the things that practices should think about when they're moving staff home, because like with telehealth, it may be something that continues on even after this uh, COVID crisis has settled down. Yeah, I've heard from some um, practices where they've got 50% of their doctors working from home and 50% from uh, in the practice to avoid that workplace health and safety risk, I suppose, of everyone being exposed at the same time. Yeah, the social distancing measures. Yeah, and also if there's, if there's a patient that comes in and everyone is at risk, then oh, half the people are at home. I think I think that's how they're thinking about it, which is probably sensible. Yeah, so practitioners probably need to have two different policies, don't they? The ones that are the practitioners who might either be the owners in the unit trust or, um, you know, contractors. And then there's the admin staff who are doing the legwork because there's there's going to be privacy issues, data storage and record keeping issues. Yeah, uh, that, that's true. So employees will be the most relevant for having a, a remote work policy because as an employer, you do have more control over them. Whereas a, a contractor is, is likely able to work from wherever they want to anyway in their agreement. So they tend to have um, more flexibility and the problem about giving policies to contractors is that um, that makes them appear more like they're an employee. So you might have a guidelines for working from home or remote work rather than a, a policy that applies to contractors, but it will definitely apply to employees. Yeah. And how about things like supervision and evaluating productivity? How do you word that and how does a practice oversee that, uh, you know, someone's actually doing work? Yeah, so you have, to, um, you have to work that into your policy about how you supervise them. It's a whole new world for lots of businesses, my practice has been operating with remote staff of 16 for about six years now. So I know if people are working or if they're not by, um, well, we track them using, uh, using, a, um, using a particular program, which I've now forgotten the name of, which is really helpful. Um, but having specific tasks that you know how long they take to do, if, if it's a doctor, you probably know how many patients they're seeing, so it's a bit easier. But with admin, um, if you've got a, a number of people remote working, it can be harder to know if they're doing if they're doing the right thing. Mm, so, so you've been using a program which allows people to log in, and then so you can see what what time they're actually working officially. Yes. Yeah. Does that do screenshots or anything like that of what their, um, is on their computer? Um, there are programs that do that. The one that we use doesn't. Mm. I just have a very high level of trust with my team. Yeah, which, you know, if, if you've selected the people well, then mm. you'd hope that that uh, will take care of itself. Anything else that um, practice owners should be uh, cognizant of about uh, remote you call it a nicely remote working policy? Mm, well, I guess that's the other thing, making sure that you're clear on where they can remote work from, even though it's probably not likely at this time they're going to be working from the library or the or a cafe, but um, making sure that they're not having family members come over and um, that they're keeping in touch with you, that the way they're keeping their documents um, is up to date, that 
insurance is taken care of, that you've gone through a workplace health and safety checklist to make sure that they're not sitting on a chair that's going to end up having them injured and you responsible for that. Um, so there's there's probably quite a lot of things to be thinking about um, to to make sure that they're safe, you're safe, um, and that you're going to be getting what you need out of them when they're working. So let's uh, let's move to advertising at APRA. So now's a great time for practices and, and uh, practitioners to look at their marketing strategy while they've got um, extra bandwidth. Mm. Can you explain the APRA regulations and how doctors might get reported and how they should respond if they do get a, a letter or a phone call from APRA? APRA. Sure. So there's actually quite a complex legislative framework that kind of goes into this. There's the national law, uh, there's the Therapeutic Goods Advertising Code, there's APRA, there's also trade practices legislation, consumer laws, and fair trading legislation. So it's not um, it's not super simple, but I think there is a webinar on my website about it, which is called How to Get More Patients Without Annoying APRA. <laughs> That's a great title, yep. Um, because we do get people who have annoyed APRA get in touch with us. And what they tend to do is they send you a, quite a clear letter that is, hey, you've breached this by doing this. And what we find is the best response uh, and we've got a 100% success rate in doing this uh, if our client does what we recommend, uh, is to say, I'm really sorry, I didn't know that this was a breach and I've rectified all these instances. So if you're genuinely sorry and you take steps to rectify, then they always go away. Um, we've had some clients who've used social media influencers and like invested quite heavily in marketing their practice in a way that is incredibly normal for other businesses to advertise in, but it just breaks every single um, requirement of the national law and ARPA's requirements. So you'll see um, chemists do it as well in a flagrant way. They... Um, they don't use proper terms and conditions when they make offers. They put pictures that are before and after that are completely um, not real. Um, they are um, they are required to comply, and they very rarely do. But I think that they just take the risk, and that's the other thing. Some people do just take the risk of getting that letter from APRA and potentially getting the fine. So, yeah, so it's, it's almost uh, ask for apologies, do it first and ask for apologies, ask for an apology yeah, later, apologise later. Right. That's, yeah, uh, seek forgiveness uh, after um, because the consequences are of breaching ARPRA's rules are that they, they investigate, they issue notices, they bring action, but they won't bring action straight away. So they'll write that letter first and if you do want to keep whatever is offending them up there, the risks are a fine of up to $5,000 for an individual or $10,000 for a company. And I think what, what doctors mostly don't want, that they don't mind too much about those 
those risks, but the risk of being publicly shamed amongst their peers seems to really um, be a big motivating factor uh, against not not doing the wrong thing, I suppose. Yeah, here's a question for you. Um, okay, so advertising with APRA, obviously doctors can't do it under their own name, but what if they're doing it as part of a practice? Say, you know, they're in a grip practice, whether it's orthopedics or um, cardiology or plastics or um, cosmetic surgery. If the practice is doing the advertising and not specifically a doctor before and after shots, how does that work? Because it's a different entity. It is a different entity. And we had this with a dentist recently who got a letter from APRA and she said exactly the same thing. And she'd structured her practice so that her husband was the owner of it. And so her argument was, well, I don't even own this practice. I just work at it. Why am I getting the letter? And in that, in the instances you just gave, the doctors will get the letters because they are the APRA registered people. So they owe the obligations. And even if there's a rogue practice manager that's doing this, um, they're the responsible ones. Yes. It's, uh, interesting. Yeah, interesting area really, isn't it? All right. Well, thanks for sharing your time uh, so generously with us today, Sarah. How can listeners get in touch with you and what services do you offer to help doctors? We help doctors avoid um, getting those letters. That's my main aim. I started out in practice as a litigator and um, having fights with people. We still do that a little bit, but I prefer to try and protect people to avoid that happening for them. Um, And Yeah, we work with allied health doctors and dentists. So my email address is sarah at ulegal.com.au. The office phone number is 1300 870661. And our website's ulegal.com.au. You've got a special offer for our our listeners today regarding the uh, remote work policy. Could you just tell us a bit more about that? Sure. I um, I guess the first thing to say about that is I wrote a book for you guys about two years ago. It's called Growing a Medical Practice from Frustration to a High-Performance Business. And we sell that through our website. And that goes through all of the things that we've talked about today. And the offer is with our remote work policy, we will... I will, from home, send you a copy of that book um, so that you can think about how to make your whole practice um, compliant, legally compliant, as as that's my passion. (laughs) Excellent. So I'll put a, um, I've made a pretty link, which is uh, medicalmoney.com slash ulegu. Y-O-U-L-E-G-A-L, and that will take you through to the uh, the contact page at ULegal. And yeah. if you just write medical money in the first line of how with the how we can help section, then Sarah and her team will know that uh, you're, you're a listener of the podcast. Yes, and you'll get a link to purchase the remote work policy, and then you also get a copy of the book too. Yeah, I imagine that, retur- that uh, remote work policy is going to save people dozens of hours and make sure that um, they're actually got something that is watertight and uh, and useful. Yes, I hope so. Yeah, excellent. So from the information you've shared today, I'm sure many of us will be taking a closer look at our practice policies over the next few weeks. Thanks, Erin. Have a great day. You too. If you're interested in learning how to optimize your finances, please subscribe to this podcast. Also, head over to my blog, medicalmoney.com and subscribe to stay updated. 
If you know a colleague who might also find this information useful, please share this with them. I'd love to get your feedback, so send questions, comments, and recommendations to me at andrew at medicalmoney.com. See you in the next episode.